Romans chapter 14. If you're using the Blue ESV Bible, you can find that on page 948. Romans 14, the title of our sermon this morning is Christian Liberty, Free in Christ. Our key words for our worshipers in training are free, sin, and conscience. Now this morning we continue in our ongoing series looking at principles of the Protestant Reformation. We're celebrating 500 years since the Reformation began as one of the most world-changing events in the history of the world. We've already looked at the five solas of the Reformation, the five alone statements beginning with Scripture alone as the ultimate source of authority in the life of the Christian and the church, not popes, not priests, not bishops, not councils, but God's Word alone. We looked at salvation being by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And those three statements comprising the heart of the gospel that we are not saved by our works, we are not saved by being better or stronger or or better looking or smarter than other people, we are saved solely by God's grace through the faith granted to us as a gift in Christ our Savior. And we looked last time that all of this is done by God, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so each one of those solas we looked at were important corrections to false teaching that specifically in the uh, the, uh, 16th century was coming out of the Roman Catholic Church and much prior to that. It signaled a return to Christ, to the religion of Christ, a departure from the religion of man. Now, having gone through those solas, which are important and necessary and are to be uh, understood and upheld and proclaimed today just as much as they were 500 years ago, we're going to look now at other principles that were very important and addressed throughout the Reformation as faithful men and women sought to look at Scripture alone to direct their life and practice. Now, many people think of the Reformation as something uh, that happened to get away from the Roman Catholic Church and to recover justification by faith. And as true as those things are, they're only part of what was being rediscovered, only part of what was being reformed and re-implemented. So we want to look at several other areas that are of vital importance to the Reformers to give us a grasp of the nature of of true Christian religion according to what was being found, and uh, in many ways that we often take for granted. We're not going to have a t- enough time in our series to cover everything that was a major uh, issue of the Reformation, but certainly we want to look at several of the most important highlights. Now, one of the more surprising of the issues that people find um, is that several of the Reformers thought that what we're going to address today was second only to the issue of justification by faith in terms of its importance during the Reformation, and that is Christian liberty. Now, hopefully by the time we're done, you will understand why that is the case. But Christian liberty for today, uh, today for many people, is sort of a, a peripheral issue or it's something that we, we just take for granted or we ignore it. In some cases, uh, some would reject it altogether. But for the Reformers, it was at the very heart of what they were doing because it is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. 
True to their own principle of sola scriptura, the Reformers believe that the truth about Christian liberty was necessarily contained in the Bible. Martin Luther wrote a treatise on Christian liberty, and he introduced it writing this. He said, one thing and one alone is necessary for life, justification, and Christian liberty, and that is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ. So you see, they never got away from the Bible in their argumentation, which is very important because for a long time prior to the Reformation, they were far from the Bible. So with Martin Luther, we must affirm that it is the Word of God from which we must draw our doctrine of Christian liberty. And how we define, define it and apply it must conform to the teaching of Scripture. So we're going to read all of Romans 14. Obviously, we won't have time to look at every verse in the way that we often like to, but I want us to get the full context, uh, and we will hit the highlights along the way. So Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, the issue of Christian liberty was significant to the Reformers because on, the whole, on a whole litany of matters, the Roman Catholic Church had bound the consciences of the people to things that were unbiblical. They fundamentally misunderstood and distorted the gospel, and so they fundamentally misunderstood and distorted the freedom that comes to the believer in Christ who has been redeemed. The problem, as the Reformers saw it, was that the very source of authority was wrong because it wasn't the Bible. So the binding of the consciences of believers was an egregious error because they were being made to carry the weight of guilt and shame for doing or not doing what the church told them to do or not do, and yet it had nothing to do with the teaching of Scripture. Like the Pharisees and Sadducees of Jesus' day, The Roman church had become an institution of law instead of a dispensary of grace. John Calvin wrote in his Institutes that Christian liberty is a matter of primary necessity, one without the knowledge of which the conscience can scarcely attempt anything without hesitation, in many must be hesitant and unsure, and in all proceeds with fickleness and trepidation. Uh, here's what he's saying. If, if we don't grasp the Bible's teaching on Christian liberty, we will go on through life unsure of how to do anything, so we will always be confused, we will always be unsure, we will always be scared to think or to say or to do anything at all until someone else tells us how to do it. He goes on, in particular... It forms a proper appendix to justification and is of no little service in understanding its force. You see, he's put Christian liberty with justification as being of utmost importance. Nay, those who seriously fear God will hence perceive the incomparable advantages of a doctrine which wicked scoffers are constantly assailing with their jibes. The intoxication of mind under which they labor, leaving their petulance without restraint. For the moment any mention is made of Christian liberty, lust begins to boil, or insane commotions arise if a speedy restraint is not laid on those whose licentious spirits by whom the best things are perverted into the worst. Are we to bid adieu to Christian liberty in order that we may cut off all opportunity for consequences? If the subject be not understood, Neither Christ, nor the truth of the gospel, nor the inward peace of the soul is properly known. Our endeavor must rather be, while not suppressing this very necessary part of doctrine, to remove the absurd objections to which it usually gives rise. So, here's the important thing that he is saying. He says it's an appendix to justification. It gives us a full understanding of what it means to be justified, to be a Christian, And instead of doing away with it because it causes 
uh, difficulty, it causes disagreement, it causes uh, sometimes some, some tension, as we're going to see in the text, among believers and among especially those who would dismiss the doctrine altogether. He says it's better to understand the doctrine and to come to an understanding of it than to, so that you can dismiss arguments against it. Why? Because, as Calvin wrote, if liberty is not understood, then Christ and the gospel and the inward peace of the soul is not properly known. That is a bold statement, and I hope you understand why he's saying that. Likewise, John Owen in the 17th century said that the second principle of the Reformation whereon the Reformers separated from the Church of Rome was this, that Christian people were not tied up onto blind obedience, onto church guides, but were not only at liberty, but also obliged to judge for themselves as unto all things that they were to believe and practice in religion and the worship of God. They knew that the whole fabric of the papacy did stand on the basis or dunghill, that the mystery of iniquity was cemented by this device, namely that the people were ignorant, and to be kept in ignorance, being obliged in all things unto the implicit obedience onto their pretend guides. I hope you understand what he's saying there. He's saying Christian liberty is of second importance to justification by faith, and that those in the church understood that if they could keep the people in ignorance of what the Scriptures taught, then they could always keep them subservient to themselves. And so they never knew what the Word of God truly said, and so they had to turn to their blind guides to tell them what to do and how to do it. Now, I assure you, this is a very significant issue today, just as it was in the first century, just as it was in the 16th century, it is today. There are a lot of men who will gladly either malign the doctrine of Christian liberty in order to bind the consciences of people, that they can become the authority in their lives, and in doing so, they functionally take over the role of the Bible and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian, Or there are others who will misuse the doctrine of Christian liberty to justify all sorts of practices and ideas that are completely contrary to the Bible's teaching on wisdom and holiness and godliness. So as is often the case, we see that the real matter is a relationship between how we understand God's law living in concert with the gospel. Now, knowing the importance of the doctrine and the historical backdrop of the Reformation that brings us to this, let's think more carefully and specifically about what Paul is saying in Romans 14. Now, at the end of chapter 13, Paul is reminding the church that the Christian life is a life of love. And so, chapter 14 is a specific application of what it is to live a life of Christian love. Now, I don't know what exactly was going on in the church in Rome, and, I, and I'm in good company because every commentary I read had something different to say about that. There are some speculations better than others, but the fact of the matter is we don't know all of the ins and outs of what was going on. However, we do know that the underlying issue behind what all of it was was that some were choosing to eat vegetables And some were choosing to eat steaks and hamburgers, if you will. Some were drinking alcohol. Some were celebrating festivals and new moons. 
And I will add that the Bible has a whole lot to say about food and drink and legalism tied to each one of those because of the context in which uh, the gospel was being preached and churches were being planted. Now, my bet on all of this is that there was probably division in the church because of uh, there being those who were Jewish and those who were Gentiles trying to come together in the local body of Christ. The Roman church was predominantly Gentile, and so they never lived a day of their lives under the Mosaic law. They never participated in feasts and festivals. They never observed dietary laws. They were never under what the apostle Peter calls the yoke of bondage. The Jews, on the other hand, they participated in all of these things under the Old Covenant. These were, these were redemptive historical signposts. These were markers along the way pointing them to Jesus. But now that they were in Christ, their consciences had not yet been fully formed by the Scriptures to know that all of those requirements of the past were no longer upon them. And we see in Scripture, all is clean. Remember Peter's animal vision in in the book of Acts. This was pointing. He saw all the animals coming down from heaven, and it was pointing to the Jew and Gentile division and showing him that in Christ there is no longer a division of any kind. And and in this instance, uh, even including the food and the drink, all of those divisions were things that were done away with in the New Covenant because those divisions that existed previously, created by God, were there to point to Jesus and to point to the uniqueness of the people of God. They were all shadows of a coming Redeemer. They were all pointing to a work of redemption. But now that He has come, now that He has lived and died and was resurrected, resurrected, His work of redemption is complete and the divisions are gone. But there was a group in the church that had not yet fully realized that the divisions were gone. And so Paul presents it that their consciences were not yet fully formed. And so the issue was of differences in the church what Paul, between what Paul called the weaker brothers and the stronger brothers. And of course, he means brothers and sisters in saying that. So let's think about what Paul writes under two headings this morning. The first is verses 1 through 12. We are going to see that if you are a Christian, you are free in Christ. Christian liberty, if we are to define it, Christian liberty very simply is the freedom as Christians to live in ways that God has not restricted by His commandments. Christian liberty is the freedom as Christians to live in ways that God has not restricted by His commandments. Our Confession of Faith, chapter 21, paragraph 2, says this, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. So, believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. Requiring implicit faith or absolute and blind obedience destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. Christian liberty to the Reformers was a matter of not just, uh, of not looking to the church to tell you how to live, or not live based on what the church said if it was not informed first by Scripture. 
So for them, it was, it was, it was things like only eating certain foods on certain seasons or certain days of the week, or observing certain days or festivals, or going on pilgrimages, or doing certain acts of contrition, or praying in a certain way, or repenting in a certain way. All of these things were being imposed on them by the church. It was a yoke of bondage contrary to God's Word. And many of us uh, can even recall Martin Luther's famous Here I Stand speech where he said reportedly, to go against my conscience is neither safe nor right. When he was called on to recant all that he had written in opposition to the church's teaching. And as our text shows this morning, as we, we have been made very aware, this was just as much an issue then as it is today. It's very important. <coughs> many Christians... Many Christians are very unclear about what liberty is and how to apply it from Scripture. I agree with Martin Luther because Martin Luther speaks the truth of Scripture. It is neither safe nor right that we would go against our consciences so long as they are informed by Scripture. So how do we think about liberty and live in the church in light of it? In verse 1, Paul tells us that we are to welcome the weaker brother in the church. Some of the church was apparently not welcoming the others. And so there was an error in Christian living. This is not the same issue Paul was dealing with. If you recall in the Galatian church, we dealt with Christian liberty in Galatians, but he was dealing there with the issue of the Judaizers, these people who weren't Christians. Remember, they were preaching a false gospel of Jesus plus something else, Jesus plus works. And, and Paul said they're preaching another gospel. They're not even Christians. And so the issue of Christian liberty there was, was different than what we see here. But here, Paul is dealing with Christians. Some of them were weak, and some of them were strong. And we see in verses 10, 13, 15, and 21, all of those verses, he uses the term brother. He wants to emphasize all throughout. He's writing to believers who are putting different emphases on Christian liberty. They were disagreeing over how free, how free they truly were in Christ. They were disagreeing over how much freedom they could enjoy in the world. Now, some of them were enjoying fine, expensive meats and cheeses and wines, knowing that they are free from the law, enjoying God and all of His good gifts, knowing that God wanted them to have joy and wanted them to delight in what He had given them because they understood all of the benefits that come in Jesus Christ. And even Paul included himself in this. If you notice in verses 13 and 14, he includes himself in what he is writing as he identifies those who are stronger brothers, as he's exhorting them to bear with the weaker, he's a part of that group of stronger Christians. And so Paul was enjoying the things, the good gifts of God in the world as he had opportunity. So who is the weaker brother? The weaker brother is one who had a conscience that is misinformed And in that information, in that misinformation, believes they are strong. It is possible, it is very possible, and it is often the case, that we can have a very strong conscience, a very strong uh, opinion of conscience about something, and yet be sincerely wrong. 
Many Christians think they are strong because they have a conscience that will not allow them to eat certain things or drink certain things or celebrate certain things, but Paul actually calls them weaker brothers. And it's important to recognize that Paul doesn't give a single inch on who is the strong and who is the weak. We don't get to the end of the chapter and, me, and, and see all of a sudden that he's made the weak the strong. He doesn't do that. That's a mistake, and that's often made in the church. The weaker brother is one who judges the strong for doing things or eating things or drinking things that they wouldn't themselves do or eat or drink. And I'm being very careful how I say that. It's not that the weaker just doesn't do those things. That's, that's fine. It's that the weaker doesn't do those things because they think that the Bible is telling them that they shouldn't do those things. And so in turn, they look at those who do do those things with an eye of judgment. I hope you understand the distinction. Now, the stronger brother has a problem as well. Because the tendency of the stronger, as Paul points out here, is to despise the weaker. The tendency can be to grow impatient with them and and write them off because you see them as, as killjoys or they're a burden to the church. But what does he write? In verse 1, he says, don't quarrel over opinions. In verse 3, he says, don't despise and don't judge. This is the problem. Everyone is blowing up differences in contention and division, and people on each side of this were digging in their heels, and the church was being divided and being destroyed over what were really, in the grand scheme of things, minor differences. But, now make sure you get this, Paul is not saying that the weaker brother is in a good place. He affirms him as a Christian. He calls on the stronger to be patient with him. But he's not saying he's in a good place. He's actually in a more dangerous place because in some ways he is despising what God has called good. However, if that is what his conscience is, and if he were to do what his conscience forbids, he would be sinning. That's how this chapter ends in verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You see that in verse 23. And so two men can do the same thing, and one not sin, and the other sin. Why? Because it has to be done in faith. In good faith is what he means. It has to be done on a clean conscience. And so the weaker brother is in a precarious place because he can actually do something that is not forbidden by God and yet in doing it, he can go against his conscience and in not doing it in good faith, he's doing it in sin. And their tendency, on the other hand, is to judge those who understand what Christ has purchased and in doing so sit back and cast condemnation and in some ways want to eliminate full fellowship of the church in the end, having in their mind, we are better Christians or, or we are stronger because we don't need or want those things. They're living sort of this quasi-ascetic life of don't eat and don't drink when God has not said don't eat and don't drink. They make a non-salvation issue a salvation issue. If you were a Christian, you would do these things in the way I do them. 
There are multitudes of weak Christians who judge the strong. And it, it can be a subtle problem that affects the entire church. Think about this. Paul is talking about something as small as food that you put into your mouth. Think, though, about how many problems in the Bible are caused over food, and you can begin all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the eating of fruit. To set up boundaries around food is legalism. To bind consciences over a matter which God has not bound a conscience on any matter is legalism. And so one brother says, I will eat, you knew it was coming, I will eat bacon every day, three meals a day. And you better not judge him because he's your pastor. (laughs) But another brother may say, I'm going to eat raw cauliflower every day, three meals a day. And as much as you should despise cauliflower, you must not despise your brother. And this error can grow into a rotten fruit that will split a church. But there's a cure to all of this, and it's the gospel. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. To God. Now, notice what both of them are doing here. They're living according to their personal conscience convictions in honor of the Lord. Paul is acknowledging that the brethren are all doing what they're doing, living unto the Lord with hearts that please God, wanting to obey God by eating or not eating. Each and every Christian lives and dies or eats and doesn't eat unto the Lord. And so we need to realize that our relationships need to be defined first and foremost, not horizontally, not with one another, but our relationships need to be defined vertically. Look at verse 9. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. You see, the death of Jesus is so all-encompassing that it solves all of these problems. And so Christian liberty is built on this foundation. Nobody can judge you, but God will judge you. However, you've been redeemed, and so you live for Christ and not for man in ways that he wants to bind your conscience. There is a very safeguarding principle here. God the judge has redeemed us in Christ. So when we judge each other for practices that are not sinful, when we are going after each other for things that God has not condemned, we are making ourselves the ruler. We are making ourselves the king. And we see that in verses 4 and 10. Now, brothers and sisters, a day is coming when all of us will stand before the Lord to give an account for our lives, and it will be vastly more searching and heart-wrenching to have the judge of the earth render a judgment on your actions than your brother or sister in Christ. However you want to judge me is nothing in comparison to how the Lord is going to do that. And so Paul is pointing out to us that you do not have the right to judge others over preference differences. Because as we heard earlier in our assurance of pardon, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. 
Christ has lived for you. Christ has died for you to be the Lord of your conscience and every other aspect of your life to include things like your dinner table. The gospel reaches so far that it gets into your food. Christ is the only Lord of our lives. Christ had to live and die and be raised to be Lord of your life. Notice in verse 5, Paul ties all of this to this this, uh, issue of this principle of personal examination. One person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Here it is. He says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So here's the thing. I do not get to come to you and judge what you eat and drink, and you do not get to tell me how to eat and to drink. Jesus Christ alone is the Lord of the conscience. And legalists hate that kind of thinking. But listen, it's the most freeing thing in the world, but it's also the most safeguarding thing in the world. Why? Because if Jesus did this, if this is the Jesus that is the Lord of my life, I want to live for him and not for myself. So some of you are thinking, well, what about gluttony? What about drunkenness? Those are real things. Those are very important things. Those are sinful things. Those are misuses and abuses of of good gifts that God has given. But, But I'm mindful of the fact that I'm to live for Christ and not myself. And if I'm thinking about that, I have the number one safeguard against eating and drinking to excess. And if I don't, I have taken my eyes off of Christ and I've put them them onto myself. But if you are my judge and I am your judge, then I'm living for you and you're living for me. A lady one time went up to Martin Luther after he preached a similar sermon and she said, if what you're saying is true, then everyone can just do whatever they desire. And Martin Luther said, you're right. What do you desire? And the response was perfect because what is the desire of the Christian? To honor Christ, to glorify God. So we wouldn't dare want to step outside of the safeguards that He has given to us. Christ has redeemed you so you can live free. And living in that freedom, when you take your eyes off of Jesus, you inevitably try to put yourself in the place of Jesus, and in doing so, you find yourself in sin. And so, remembering the gospel and remembering what Christ has done is our safeguard in liberty. Not setting up new laws, not setting up new rules of restriction, but the gospel Listen, it doesn't matter who you are or your circumstances in life. On the day of judgment, you won't be judged by what you ate or what you drank. You will be judged based upon the moral law of God. And on that, you will give an account before God. And friend, if you don't know Christ, I want you to consider your life in light of that law of God. Think of the Ten Commandments and how do you measure up? I assure you that you don't. And that is the basis upon which God will judge. And yet He has given us hope in Christ. That in Christ we can be set free from a bondage, from a bondage of being judged on the basis of law for our salvation and instead on the basis of Christ and His fulfillment of the law on our behalf that we can live for Him because He has died for us. So how do we handle all of this Christian liberty? Know first and foremost 
about and all the implications of your relationship to God in Christ. But then we must think hard about our relationship and responsibilities to others. This is always the pattern of Scripture, isn't it? We look first to God and then to one another. Well, our last point this morning, and and this uh, will be brief, if you are a Christian, love your brother or sister in Christ. This is verses 13 through 23. Christian liberty must be guided by love. In verse 14, Paul tells us that no food or drink is unclean or unholy in and of itself. We love to put prohibition on things out there. But abuse is something that is a heart issue in here. It is not an issue with the thing itself, whatever that thing is. You cannot name a single food or a single drink of any kind that is unholy as a thing in and of itself. Legalism is built on things out there being unclean as if they are the problem. However, Paul tells us that for the uninformed conscience of the weaker brother, it is wrong for them because they don't have a clear conscience. So we have to ask, what is my relationship to that person? If I'm a stronger brother, what is my relationship to the weaker brother? And what's his warning? Verse 13, don't be a stumbling block to them. He warns us, what is your relationship to them? Verse 15, don't destroy them by what you eat or drink. The implication of that is what? That I must love them. Now, what Paul is not saying here, and this is important, what Paul is not saying is that we should never eat certain foods or drink certain drinks anywhere because they might cause a brother to stumble. If you are doing that, what are you doing? You're taking the weaker brother, making him the stronger, and giving him the, the, the keys to being the judge and guide of your conscience. And so you're allowing him to bind your conscience in the same way that you're not to bind his. You may choose not to drink. You may choose to be a vegetarian. Or you may choose to drink stout beer and eat deer hearts and cow tongues. And you may choose to do all of that in public, and that's okay. Paul is not saying, I will never do this in public because someone might get the wrong idea. Remember Jesus? He ate and drank publicly with others, and what was he accused of? Being a glutton and a drunkard for doing so. But what is Paul saying? He's saying that we are not to entice our weaker brother into eating and drinking what their conscience does not allow them to eat or drink. And so I'm not, I'm not flaunting it. I'm, I'm not offering it to them. I'm not making fun of them for not doing it. I'm not running roughshod over them. I'm not trying to pressure them. Hey, come on. Aren't you tired of eating kale chips and tofu? Don't you want a dry-aged New York strip steak? Yes. <laughs> no, because I love my brother, I don't want him with a misinformed conscience to be enticed. That's not love. So Christian liberty demands that we use discernment and we know what's on the conscience of one another. That requires us to know each other. It requires us to know something of our lives with one another. We have to be sensitive to other people in the church and where they're at, all within the context of maintaining the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. 
If you have a weaker brother into your home, don't entice him. Don't poke and prod him. Don't malign him. Love him and be aware of where his conscience is. And if he's a vegetarian, don't make pot roast for dinner. But if you're a weaker brother and your stronger brother doesn't know that you don't eat pot roast for dinner and you show up and it's there, don't judge him for doing so. Politely decline and eat something else. So you see, Paul is instructing the weaker to have a stronger conscience. That's really the thrust of what he's doing here. If, you have a, if you're a weaker brother, you need to be a stronger brother in your conscience. He's not saying the things you are not eating or not drinking uh, are, have to be done away with in terms of that, that you have to start eating or drinking. He's saying uh, your conscience cannot be burdened with the fact that you're doing that because the Word of God teaches that because it doesn't. So he's, he's pressing on the weaker to be stronger, but he's also teaching the stronger to be patient through the door of Christian love. Misinformed consciences need to be informed by the Word of God, and we don't want to give them cause for stumbling. Listen, I've thought back on things that I, I said early on as a pastor or as a young Christian, and I absolutely cringe because I know they were said at the time with a misinformed conscience things I didn't know. And I, I'm sure that'll happen again in 10 years as I look back on where I'm at now. None of us gets everything right, right away. Christian growth and sanctification take time. And for those who are the stronger and further along in our Christian walk, it takes patience. It takes love because love is patient and love will give time for growth. We shouldn't hide or sneak around, but we should be careful and we should be discerning. So you see, this is a very important issue. One of the most important issues because it's not just about food and drink. These principles can be applied across the board to whether or not we wear a suit and tie in church or women wear pants or skirts or if we drive a sports car or a minivan or if we homeschool our kids or send them to public school or if we use cloth diapers or huggies uh, with our kids or if moms have C-sections or deliver in their kitchen or how we change the oil in our cars or don't because we don't know how or if we enjoy golf or football or hockey or or even NASCAR, all of the, I love you, Billy, <laughs> all of this, all of these things could consume and divide us because none of us will live under the weight of someone else's judgment. We live before God alone, and binding one another's consciences misses the point of that entirely. Here's the heart of all of it. Verse 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is indifferent to what we eat and drink. It's a thing indifferent. What's not indifferent is a life marked by peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. The Lord wants the weaker brother to grow strong and not judge the stronger. The Lord wants the stronger brother to not despise and to be patient with the weaker. The Lord wants all Christians to get over themselves and their issues and learn to live together in love and peace because the kingdom of God must be unified and is not reduced down to the small things. Be a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are like God. That's what Jesus tells us. And when you live like a peacemaker, you are free indeed, free in Christ to live before Christ as Christ wants you to live. 
Martin Luther wrote, A Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. Brothers and sisters, live as you desire. But what is your desire? Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word, for the challenge of your word to consider our hearts and where we are. First and foremost, that each of us would consider if we understand your word, if we understand what your word tells us to do and not do, to believe and not believe. And Lord, if there are areas that we have bound our own conscience where you have not bound us, we pray that you help us to see the truth and to no longer be weaker in those things, but that we can be among the strong. And we pray, God, that when we have convictions that are misaligned with the Word of God, or we have convictions to do or not do something that someone else chooses to not do or do, we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to not judge one another, to not seek to bind another's conscience, but to walk with them in patience and peace with a desire for unity. And I pray, God, for all of us as we go about our lives living freely as those redeemed in Christ, that the desire of our heart, the great desire of our heart would be to honor you because you have lived for us in Christ. You've died for us. You've been risen again that we might live freely and yet within the safeguards of the gospel because our great desire is to bring praise and honor and glory to your great name. And so we pray, God, with thankful hearts for your word and what you have given us in your word. And we pray that we would walk faithfully in accordance to it. All of this offered to you in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.